It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you did. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. 17-14 is the final. One touchdown, we are world champions. Believe it, and it will happen. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. Welcome to Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com as well as the mobile app. With it for the next 60 minutes, multiple ways for you to interact with us here on the program, 201-939-4513. You can also check in on Twitter, hashtag Giants Chat. We've got Paul Dottino, Jeff Fiegels, Lance Meadow with you. And a reminder, you can find the archive of this show and our entire podcast network on the Giants mobile app, podcast platforms everywhere, and at Giants.com slash podcast. So today is day one of giving out the franchise tag. It's going to go for a period of time that lasted until March 8th. Teams have an opportunity to place the tag on any potential free agents or players that they wish to do so. So we'll certainly delve into that and we'll get into some other NFL news as we make our way through the next 60 minutes. Guys, how are we doing today? Good. Good. Hi. Hello, guys. Yes, indeed. Well, a long <laughs> holiday weekend in which we actually experienced no football for the first time in quite some time. So I hope yeah. that you guys were all able to survive like the rest of us in not having any football on Sunday. That's a very depressing thought, Lance. <laughs> well, it's just the reality of the circumstance, Paul. I'm not yeah. telling you anything that we don't know at this point. <laughs> I, wa- I, wa- I got to watch one of my only basketball games I usually watch. That was the All-Star game. It was pretty fun to watch, but that's just me. <laughs> I'm not a big basketball guy, but, boy, what a, those guys are amazing athletes. I mean, some of the stuff that those guys do is crazy. But, yeah, kind of, kind of, you know, no football. That's uh, But we can talk a lot about it. I guess we just can't watch any of it, so. Yes. Well, you were referring to the NBA All-Star mm-hmm. Game. They had the 75th anniversary ceremony at the yeah. half where they went through the top 75 players in NBA history. So that was certainly very nice. And you got to see Steph Curry hit 16-3. So you picked the right game, Jeff, to tune into. <laughs> I know. I only picked it because my kids were watching it, too. Oh, okay. So you basically forced into it is what you're saying. <laughs> I know. Okay, yeah. Now we get but, to the bottom yeah, of it. Yeah, I know. So. <laughs> but, but I was kind of sucked into it. I, I mean, I wasn't really. All of a sudden, man, it was pretty entertaining. I mean, I, I don't know. It's, I know some people don't really like it, but it's by far better than the Pro Bowl. I will tell you that. You know, talk Well, about there was slightly a little bit more defense than the Pro Bowl. So that was the main difference <laughs> yeah. between both of those and games, I, at least when it came to the fourth quarter. I like the so. format. I mean, hundred. you know, you get uh, the first one to whatever, the one, and it resets after each, at each uh, quarter. Um, money goes to the charity, and you start over. So that's pretty cool. I like it. Definitely a unique spin. Well, what is not unique is the franchise tag, because that's been around for many, many years. And as I mentioned, today is day one. And, I mean, really, Paul, when you think about it from the Giants' perspective, not to say that it would be crazy, but at this point, hard to believe that the Giants are actually going to implement the tag on any of their potential free agents. I just don't think that there's anyone that they would say to themselves, hey, we're really fearful of them hitting the market, and as a way to protect them from hitting the market, we're going to utilize the tag. I agree with you, Lance. I mean, perhaps next year you might have somebody who you would consider, but basically uh, this year, looking at the contracts and how things are are constructed at the moment, they've got more trouble worrying about who they're going to trim and what monies they need to clear out than they do putting a tag on somebody. And if you look at... Jeff, we've done this in terms of some previous shows. We've looked at some of the key free agents, at least in terms of name and notoriety-wise. Of course, you have Jabril Peppers. You have Evan Ingram. So, I mean, those would be candidates that you could throw out. But if the Giants are interested in bringing back either one of them, I I don't see the market being overwhelming that the Giants wouldn't be able to make an offer. And then to Paul's point, if priority number one is to get under the cap, 
right now you're not thinking about eating up space with the franchise tag that's going to now prevent you from getting under the cap, which obviously has to be the most pertinent maneuver as we get closer to the start of free agency here. Well, I think that, you know, getting under the cap is important because if you are going to, you know, free agency is right around the corner. And if you're going to make some sort somewhat of a splash in free agency, whatever it is, you got to you got to concentrate on that position. So is it the tight end or is it the safety position in the two guys that you mentioned? If the team is that's where they want to go. I don't see it happening. I, I think that, you know, both of those, although the Giants are in a need, you know, this tight end position doesn't look very promising when it comes to how many guys are on the roster and injuries and things like that. But um, we'll, we'll kind of see what happens there. But I, I don't I don't think I'm with you guys. I don't think there's any need to go out and franchise any of those two guys that you said. Hey, by the way, Lance, before we go any further, Jeff, I need to ask you something. The Please franchise do. tag for the kickers slash punters this year five mil. is over five million a year. Good. Now I don't I don't know <laughs> how many years would it have taken Long. even an all pro at your position <laughs> to make five million back in the day. A long time, and you know what's funny is that I I think it's great. I mean, some people have a sour taste in their mouths as far as like, oh, my God, I can't believe how much these guys are making and this and that. It doesn't matter. You know, it's all relative when I played and these other guys that played in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, whatever. Um, but it's good. It just goes to show you that the game is healthy. It goes to show you that if you want to, you know, work hard and, and make a good living at being a kicker or a punter, well, if they franchise you to make $5 million. You know, it's funny because when you look at the franchise tags around the league, the kickers and punters get franchised quite a bit um, because I feel like the number – is so low for the the uh, the position. I mean, if you could get yourself a kicker for you know four and a half five million bucks, and he's in one of the top guys in the league, that's pretty good. I mean, you don't have to pay him you know a long term contract. So I think it's good. Um, it's a lot of money, but you're right, it's good for those guys. Well, and also remember, guys, we just experienced a divisional round in the playoffs where all four games came down to a field goal. Yeah. So it just goes to show you there's value. If you have a great 100%. kicker and you don't want him to test the market, Jeff, as you mentioned, yeah. heck, I would place the franchise tag on him. I mean, Justin Tucker, for example, with the Ravens, mm -hmm. if you know his percentage-wise pretty much is as close to automatic as you're going to find in the National Football League, and you play a lot of close games, and pretty much everybody does for the most part, and that's the difference between winning two to three extra games? I mean, why wouldn't you invest that type of a number in a kicker? I mean, it just, you know, the, just, it just goes to show you, like you said, look at the games at the end of this uh, season and the playoffs and stuff. you got to have yourself a kicker. Um, you know, they're going to win a lot of games for you during the season, and if you don't have one, they're going to lose a lot of games for you too. Um, but I just think, it's, as always, that the position doesn't warrant a lot of the respect just because it's, uh, you know, we're the kickers and punters are out there in left field and, they don't really, they're not really football guys, but that never bothered me because it's fine. If I you wasn't, know, no, Jeff, hmm. let me ask you something though here because we talk about the tag all the time with the offensive linemen, and I think to be frank with you, the way the specialization has taken over the National Football League, these tags are archaic and outdated because you know offensive line gets one price. We all know there's a difference between tackles and guards and centers. Yeah. Okay, we all know, right? We all know there's a difference also 
uh, whether they, they have defensive ends, they have defensive tackles, but we all know there's a difference, and we, we saw what Leonard Williams did. You know, when, when he was tagged, it was like, well, am I going to be a tackle or an end? I want to be classified as, as an end, but, oh, well, I played too many spots at tackle, and you get these guys who have grievances, and, and he's not the only one. There have been a lot of guys over the last several years. Yeah, Matt Judon is a guy that filed No question. Yeah. And so the tags are actually archaic. I, I can't get over the fact that the NFL hasn't gotten down to detailing these tags more closely than what they are because all they do is open themselves up to grievances and arbitration and all this other kind of stuff. But to that point, Jeff, I wanted to ask you, the kickers and the punters are lumped in together at over $5 million a year with the tag. Do you feel that the kickers and punters should be separate tags? Well, I think the teams do. I do. Um, but, I mean, I, I'm not going to argue if I'm a punter and they want to franchise me and pay me five mil. I'm not going to. You know, <laughs> but I, I think that I, um, the way that it's always gone is the kickers have made more money, money than the punter. Um, that's just the way it is. You know, they score points. They win games for you. Um, to your, you know, so I, they, I think they probably should, Paul, to be honest with you. I think they're, they're two different positions. Um, I guess it's almost like a, an interior defensive lineman and a an, and an, uh, guy that's on the edge, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, defensive end, like I'm looking at the franchise tag estimates here online. They have them at 17.5 for a defensive end and $17 million for a defensive tackle. So they're not a big discrepancy there, but they're probably, I mean, is there is a D end edge rusher? Those guys, you know, they're probably wanting to be make, make more money. But to your point, remember when, remember when um, uh, Williams was trying to say that he was not an interior that defensive lineman. He was a he was an outside guy trying to get more money. Right. But right. here this year, it's just showing the estimates are sixteen and a half and or excuse me, seventeen and a half for a DN and seventeen million for a D tackle. I wouldn't be arguing much of that if I was one of those guys. It's almost the same, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's very close right now. The interesting one usually is the edge rusher, where they have a lot of disputes of is the guy a linebacker or yeah. is he a defensive end? Well, the linebacker and the, is eighteen and a half million, so yeah, maybe that's there's there's a million is. dollar difference there. Yeah. And then the other thing though that's kind of funny is don't you think an outside linebacker and an inside linebacker are two totally different positions based on the way that coaches scheme it today? Well, but that's why it goes back to how the team utilizes the player. Yeah. Some teams would say that their interior linebacker is asked to do a lot, and it merits that type of a value in terms of the franchise tag. So that's another reason why I don't think that the NFL, and also keep in mind, the union would be involved in any changes too. And that's a big reason why we haven't seen changes, Paul, to answer your question about why we see we'll need to the be generic collective. label as yeah. opposed to specifications in terms of utilization of the position because first of all you have to understand the percentage of players that are impacted by the franchise tag is minute when you take that into consideration of the entire NFL player population so why would the union overall care about the franchise tag as a whole group I'm talking about if it only impacts very few players they have other far more pressing issues that they're going to battle over with the league than the delegation of the franchise tag. It's just because we have this conversation every single year, and I continue to give that as a response. Until the franchise tag starts to impact the majority of players, which you know it never will, it's Mm -hmm. only a small crop of players, you're never going to make this a big enough issue for the union to fight to say, hey, 
defensive ends and outside linebackers should have different qualifications than just being grouped in together with all defensive linemen and linebackers. I agree with you that in the scope of issues that they fight for every year as a players union, or certainly when the CBA comes up, this is something that is so minute that it probably won't get battled over. But that doesn't mean it's right or it's accurate because it's frankly not. No, and those are two different things. I mean, it's more of like the morality clause that we're arguing with respect to NFL. Is it right to put a player in that position? But whenever you're dealing with something that has to be worked out with respect to the union, it doesn't come down to just the morality or what's right or what's wrong. It comes down to what the union is prioritizing in terms of their needs for the next collective bargaining agreement. And Jeff, I'm sure you saw this right through the union negotiations in years past. There were certain things the union would prioritize that they would hope impacts the entire body of players as opposed to a small group of players. Sure. I mean, there's 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 an agenda going into that stuff. And absolutely. I mean, you, you're going to fight for what's correct. We you know what you want. Um you know, and, no, and nobody's ever going to be happy. That's the problem. You know, there's no, there's no way to make everybody happy about this because we all know how much money the National Football League makes as players, and we just want a part of it, you know? And so I think there's a lot of discussion that goes into that, but the, the, the union will always side on the players, that's for sure. And that's why also, from the team perspective, I don't think they're fighting <laughs> the fact that offensive linemen are all grouped together because the bottom line is if you have a very good tackle and you could just put the tag on them mm-hmm. or if you have a good guard or a center and you don't want to pay them <laughs> like a tackle, right, there's an advantage yeah. from that standpoint. Yeah. So I'm with you, Paul. I mean, it does put a player who is really good and should be specified at a certain position under that umbrella. Yeah, they get impacted by this. But once again, I think there's far and few guys that qualify for that, and that's why we haven't seen any drastic change. Because Matt Judon is another guy I brought up. If you Mm -hmm. remember a few years ago when the Ravens put the tag on him, he was arguing, well, wait a minute. You know, I'm this guy who plays linebacker, defensive lineman. I'm sort of this versatile, hybrid type of player. And there have been years where... This has come up that maybe instead of having a specific tag within the defensive linemen or the linebackers, that they should have a hybrid tag, a tag that applies to a guy that falls in that gray area. Maybe that's something that they could look into, but the problem is you're going to get a running back, guys, that's going to argue I'm utilized like a wide receiver, like Christian McCaffrey, for example. Couldn't he make an argument? I get more receptions than any of the wide receivers on my team, right? (laughs) Why should I be given the running back tag, right? I should be given a tag that has some middle ground between a wide receiver and a running back. So you're always going to have that. File a grievance. Jimmy Graham, yeah, he was a guy. Yeah. He, he was ticked off because he said, I'm more of a wide receiver than a tight end. Yeah. Sure. Which yeah. meant he would get more money on the tag. Well, sure. Absolutely. No, that's another great example of a guy that, once again, falls in that gray area because there's a tight end that led his team in receptions and receiving yards and touchdowns because he was treated like a number one wideout. It's almost, it's almost doubled. What I'm looking at, 10.8 million here as a franchise tag for a tight end and for a receiver, it goes all the way up to 19.1. Yeah, I, I mean, can that's... see why he wants to be like, I'm a receiver. <laughs> well, then look at but look at a running back, Jeff, to a yeah. wide receiver too. Oh my right? goodness, yeah. Running back is 12 and a half, and then the wide receiver is just over 19. So if once again, if you're a running back that gets a lot of receptions. 
you're saying to yourself, well, why don't you meet me halfway? I mean, why don't you give me 15 to 16 million yeah. as opposed to me settling for the $7 million difference? And I think a lot yeah. of times, you know, one of the functions of this uh, franchise tag is to just delay getting a deal done, as you guys know. And so I think a lot of those discussions, once it's moved forward after the, the tag is put on the player, it's with, you know, it's, it's in good intentions, if you will, from both sides that we want to try to get something done. And there's a certain date that you got to do that by. And if that's not the case, then, then the player is stuck with that number moving forward. And I think that a lot of times the player gets a little bit mad if they didn't get something done because they're, they feel like they're leaving money on the table. Um, because, you know, one of these things that we're just arguing about, if I'm a tight end, I'm getting more receptions than the receiver, then there's where the argument comes in. So if you can get a long-term deal done, then some of that money can be made up through the years that they put on a contract. You just can't do that with the transition tag. It's just, bam, that's the number. That's it. We're finished. See you later. Well, and the transition tag also gives the team that has the player, at least under their control, entering free agency, the right to first refusal. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that if your player is given the transition tag, they go off and they work out a deal with somebody else, you have to then offer it back to the initial team, and then the team has the decision, do we want to match it or do we let you go? So the benefit of the transition tag, Jeff, which you were alluding mm -hmm. to, is I like giving that out. If you're so-so on a player and you don't want to be the one that sets the market, I'd go to the player, I'd give him the transition tag, and I'd say, hey, go out, explore the market, come back with your agent, see if you could do 10 times better than what we're willing to pay you, and then you have somebody else set the market for you as opposed to you putting yourself in a corner or a precarious spot. So I like the transition tag for teams that are sort of, once again, they're on the fence about a player. I think that's a valuable tool. Yeah, I, I do remember that um, when I was uh, – a free agent, you know, working with a team. Well, I'll just give an example for the Giants. I, I was never a free agent with the Giants. It was always me trying to redo my deal and things like that. But, you know, there are there are players that the Giants want. They don't even they're not going to do the transition tech. They go to the player before free agency and say, listen, you know, you go ahead and go out and test the water. And then, you know, this when you come back to us, we'll we'll see if we can match or whatever. Now, a lot of times that doesn't happen. Right. But it also works both ways. So the team says, go out and get something. The player's got a little little bit, you know, he has an idea of maybe his market is worth more, but it isn't. And then he comes back, come back to the team and the team says, well, you know, this is our number. So you're kind of from a free agency standpoint, it's just you need two to tango. You got to have that second team. That way, the market can be set that way. But some of these guys, it's just the, the, the football, you know, the Giants basically say, this is what we're going to pay you. This is what we think your market value is. If you go get it, great. If not, come back to us. We'll pay you for we'll pay you that. And I'm sure that all, most of the teams do that the same way. It's just another, once again, tool utilized under the collective bargaining agreement to give yourself some insurance. But yeah, as you mentioned, Jeff, it always takes two to tango. A player could feel like, yeah, I want to test the market. And then nobody comes calling. And <laughs> then all of zero. a sudden, yeah, you're left with no leverage in terms of the negotiations. Mm -hmm. Lance Meadow, Paul Dottino, Jeff Eagles with you here on Big Blue Kickoff Live, Tuesday's edition. A reminder, as we look ahead to the 2022 season, that you could secure your season tickets for that campaign today for only $100. Limited seats are available. Speak with a Giants ticket representative. Now become a season ticket member. You call 888-NYG-1925. Let's open up the phone lines as we move forward here. Rick is in Tampa, and he joins us. What's happening, Rick? What's up, guys? What's going on, Rick? How are What's going on, Rick? Good. Good. Hey. I don't know. It's beautiful. It's 80, it's 80 degrees here. I'm waiting for uh, baseball to start. I've been talking to some Yankees. That they're all eager, so hopefully we'll uh, 
get it this week and uh, we can start at least have that to uh, get us going as we wait for the uh, draft and everything with the football. So hopefully we'll, we'll get it going. Um, I have a question for you. And with, uh, when uh, Joe was talking about kicking, the importance of a kicker seems to be, I mean, it's so important because how many games, I mean, not punting, yeah, that's important too. I'm talking about place kicker and looking at McPherson this who I saw it in Florida for, for, for a while he was playing, but I didn't think really – I know he's good, but I didn't think that much of him to notice him. But how important with this with a kicker that can win games, it, it always comes down to it. You win Super Bowls. You look at uh, the, the Hall of Fame. Now, Adam Vinatieri, he's, he's the greatest. He's Hall of Famer. Uh, who else has been in the Hall of Fame in place kicking? And – how far up was the in the draft was a place kicker taken? What is who who's who's drafted the highest? And would you ever deem a first round pick on a place kicker when it comes to such an important role to win games? I just think there's so much importance there that it's not necessarily it's thought of. Oh, we'll get them in the fourth or fifth round. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I do know that uh, Sebastian Janikowski was drafted in the first round as a kicker from the Raiders. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so was Ray Guy. Um, so those that you know that team goes to show you that they have our high respect for punting and kicking positions. <laughs> um, but you know, when you look at the way that these games come down to it, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I think that you know you got to put a lot of importance into those. Now, here's the other thing about the kicking position that has evolved over the last—I just call it ten years. Um, you know, the field now is you, you're scoring points now because these guys are kicking 50-plus field goals at, at, at a rate that's, like, ridiculous now. You know, so these guys can make 54-yard, 55-yard field goals um, with pretty good accuracy. And so now you think about if you have a kicker that can do that, like, like the Giants, and Grand Gano is very good outside of 50 yards, um, you now are able to, your field, your scoring field, it shrinks, right? I mean, you're able to just get the ball past the 50, and next thing you know, you got three points. So that's mm-hmm. where I think a kicker that's not only accurate but has great leg, leg strength, if you can find that type of kicker, I, I, I think he's, it warrants a, a high draft pick. I really do. You know, Jeff, how many of these guys over the years have truly been underappreciated? And I know that always been we, underappreciated. We, we, we talk about the robo kickers of the last decade because these guys, as you say, are, have no trouble hitting 50, 55. Hell, there have been a bunch of 60 yarders mm-hmm. in the last how many years, which, you mm-hmm. know, we thought when Tom Dempsey did what he did with the Saints, we'd never see another one because remember, he had his toes cut off and he had that, yeah, that club foot when he set the all-time longest field goal record. But since then, we've had a bunch of guys, a whole a whole handful of them, who have since surpassed uh, Dempsey's longest field goal. But but Morton Anderson and Jan Stenerud, you know, in the modern era, those are the only two pure kickers who have been inducted into Canton. And it just seems to me like that's not enough. Never is. Yeah. <laughs> Justin Tucker in. hit a 66-yard field goal this yeah. season against the Lions. That won it for them. Yep. So NFL record. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Vinatieri's in, right? No. 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 Vinatieri's not. not in. He will no. go. He'll go. I mean, he's just no. not. Oh, he's not eligible yet. Yeah. No. There's four Young players Denver. that played the kicker yeah. position that are in the Hall of Fame, but two that did it on a regular basis, and those were the two that Paul mentioned. Because George Blanda, for example, was yeah. not just a kicker. Yeah. And, and Groza, too. And the, the infamous Lou Groza, also yeah. known as the toe <laughs> during his tenure. That goes back to the 40s. Yeah. 
the, the and, and I'll leave on this note. I always think it's one of the funniest, you know, the ESPN commercials. They always do it at the end of the year at, uh, around New Year's. They do the, the little uh, uh, ESPN clips for like an hour of all the past ones. One of the best ones of all time is at the airport, if you remember that, when Jim Kelly would, <laughs> is waiting behind Adam Vinatieri, who has his, keeps beeping the, uh, um, the airline uh, security to get up, and he takes out, oh, he had a ring, remember, and, and they beep him again, and he, oh, wait, another, another ring. Another yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly in the background, which, oh, it's hilarious. <laughs> that's one of the greatest, uh, greatest of all commercials, but, yeah, that's uh, the importance of a kicker, and, uh, yeah, I'd say he was the greatest. So, all right, guys, thanks a lot. All right, Rick, thanks, appreciate Rick. the phone call. Yeah, yeah I don't think anybody would sunshine. dispute the value of the kicking game. I mean, that's why I brought up the divisional round to the playoffs, I think, proved the value of kicking. Evan McPherson, who was the rookie for the Bengals, did not miss a kick in the postseason. So he was critical, and the Bengals won a lot of close games. And look at the Minnesota Vikings this year. And think about how many close games they lost, and sometimes it came down to kicking. They actually they were an 8-9 and nine team. Eight of their nine losses were decided by eight points or less. And I know that's not just on kicking, but if you go through Mike Zimmer's tenure, mm-hmm. even in the playoffs, that playoff game, guys, remember against the Seahawks where it was a chip shot right at the end of the game and the kicker missed it, and they lost the playoff game? I mean, mm-hmm. that's the poster child of a team that realizes how valuable having a consistent kicker is. So I don't think anybody would dispute that, considering the margin for winning and losing in the NFL is so small. Let's uh, head back to the phone lines, and we check in with Jason in New Haven joining us here. What's happening, Jason? Uh, how you guys doing? Good. Good. Hi. What's on your mind? Good, good. Thanks, thanks for taking my call. Um, I just had a few few things uh, that I wanted to bring up, get your opinion. Um, the first thing this is not Giants related, but maybe Lance or, or any one of you guys could comment on it. Um, I was reading about the 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 pros, the draft prospects going to Indianapolis potentially boycotting um boycotting going to the um the combine due to the I guess I don't know if it's still like the um, COVID restrictions or something. Something that well, the whole point, about. Jason. I don't mean to cut you off, but the bottom line was they were going to do a bubble where they didn't want the prospects interacting with their nutritionists, anybody who helps them train, their agents. So clearly the agents were fighting on behalf of the players to not have those restrictions in place. And they have now said they're not going to have a bubble. They're going to allow the prospects to interact with their respective representatives and so forth. So that's a non-issue at this point. And as far as the whole boycott aspect of it that was part of it but the other part of it was and this comes up every year with the combine most agents advise their players that they don't want them to go through the drills and everything especially if that can wind up hurting their opportunities to be ranked so forth leading up to the draft so they advise them listen go for the interviews go for the medical checkups to at least give the teams all the pertinent information they want and then save the other stuff for your pro day when the environment is a little bit more conducive to what you want to be able to showcase yes yes um i just wanted to say i i I, um and this will be another topic for another discussion but i'm kind of glad that the those players did have some kind of uh, backbone and some kind of say because just last week uh, we saw 60,000 people packed in LA for a Super Bowl with no mask. So, um, like I said, that's a different topic, but I did wanted to bring that up that wasn't Giants related. Um, the second thing, um, I don't know how you guys feel about this. I know a lot of fans have called up or I've read a lot of articles. Oh, the Giants need to draft two offensive linemen in the first, or one in the second, one in the fifth. 
And I just I don't know how feasible that is if you're really going best player available because if Thibodeau or Hutchison is there five and we have the tackle from Mississippi State, I mean, I don't know how much positional value will come into play. Um, but to me, if those two pass rushes are there, regardless if we still need tackle help, I, I just don't see how we forego those two. If it was to happen, I doubt it will, but I'm just using – those two um, for an example. And I don't think playing all four positions um, in the offensive line with rookies is the most prudent thing to do because they are going to make mistakes. They are going against grown men. And I still think, I think Joe Shane will probably, I don't know if you guys agree with me, but I think he will try to sign a, a pretty decent offensive lineman, maybe not top of the market guy, but somebody to stabilize either the guard, either one of the guard positions, or maybe the right tackle position, um, because I just don't think you go into NFL season with just all rookies and Andrew Thomas. Andrew Thomas had a great year last year, but I just I don't see how that's feasible with playing all four rookies. And I'm not saying you guys are saying that, but I've heard a lot of fans um, bring that up. So I didn't know, you know, if you guys want to comment or you want me to finish my last point. Well, why don't you make your last point and then we'll react okay. to those other things. Okay, and the last one would be um, uh, to the uh, Costa, Dable, and Jones um, marriage, uh, at least for this year. We'll see what happens uh, going after that, depending on how Jones does this upcoming season. But I just had a, a thought. So I, from my understanding, Costa comes from the Andy Reid tree, which is, to me, and I could be wrong. Maybe you guys could uh, enlighten me, but I'm pretty sure that's a West Coast system. Is that, am I correct in that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, which Jones did thrive under. It was an easy system to call play concepts, and he and Jones did thrive under that with Shermer. Um, in my opinion, um, Jones to me doesn't have the quick decision making required to be a high caliber franchise quarterback. That's my opinion. Um, but if you read about the system Dable adopted. Um, from New England to Buffalo, um, it's a system that like is simple in calling concepts, but yet complex in how it allows the QB to like manage the game, calling out protections, uh, defense, um, receiver concepts. And to me, what I've seen these are some of the things Jones has struggled in. Um, so I would hope this year Kafka is calling the plays, just because if we go off of Jones, the last really good productive year, which was under Shermer. Um, they all come from that West Coast tree. So I'm hoping that, you know, I'm sure they'll manage the two offenses with Dable and Costa, but I'm really hoping they really integrate a lot of West Coast um, concepts in the playbook this year because Jones was really good at that that under um, Sherman. So I just want to see what you guys thought about those two comments, and I appreciate you guys taking my call. All right, Jason. Appreciate the phone call. Well, real quickly, I'll add, guys, and you know, feel free to expand on whichever one you want to do. The, the point about, well, you hope that Kafka calls plays because he comes from a West Coast background. If Dable and Kafka are going to work out their own offensive scheme, both of the guys are going to be familiar with the concept of the offense by the time the season starts. So to me, it would be irrelevant in terms of saying one of the two has to call the plays just because he comes from that background. Meaning, if Dable winds up calling the plays, he's going to incorporate whatever Kafka wants within the offense, so he's going to have a good feel of those concepts. So I really don't think it makes a difference in terms of who calls the plays by the time we get to the start of the regular season. 
I would agree with that, Lance. Uh, you know, what Dable's going to have to figure out over the next few months, and maybe he won't actually have this done until training camp. It's quite possible. But he's got to figure out if he's going to call the plays or if Kafka is. We don't know because we haven't talked to Brian now since his initial press conference. But I would anticipate that at some point in time, they will sit down, they will talk about the playbook. They will discuss the philosophies, the individual kinds of plays that they want to run. Some specific plays, I'm sure, that uh, Kafka will bring with him from Kansas City and say, Brian, what do you think about some of this stuff? You know, we ran some of this with the Chiefs. I think it works within your philosophy. Can we throw some of these pages into your playbook? And after they kind of mesh this thing together like a meatloaf, then at some point in time, Brian will have to decide who actually gets to make those calls. I think it goes hand in hand with uh, the uh, the offense and what type of offense this is going to be here with the Giants and both of those guys putting it together that will also impact the way that the Giants draft this year. Because when I was talking to Brian Dable that day and we were mentioned, I just asked him about his offense. He was, he was quick to tell me that, you know, right now what I'm, what we're doing is analyzing this football team and trying to figure out how we can get the players that are here and get those guys put into our system rather than having the system and putting, you know what I'm saying? Like forcing it on the players. They're going to try to get the guys to be able to put them into the system, which now tells me that a lot of times maybe in this draft and nobody knows this because Brian Dable's never been a head coach before. He's never run a draft. Okay. Uh, you know, Joe Shane has been in a draft room with the, as an assistant, he's never run his own draft. So what will that bring to the table? That may be, there might not be the point where they're doing draft by best player available. They might start drafting guys that they need to fill for their offense. So I think it goes hand in hand with the offensive line like the caller was talking about. Well, you know, Jeff, too, you have to consider um, they can't totally rip this roster down to the very bare minimum because nobody has the ability to fill up, you know, 40 and 50 spots in one season. No, you can't right? do that. No. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. There are a number of players who maybe fans don't like, even maybe some people that the new coaching staff and the general manager may not necessarily like. But because you just can't change over your entire roster in one year, there are going to be guys that they have to keep simply because you can't turn over that many bodies in a given offseason. So there will be players on this team that aren't necessarily great fits but they're just going to have to try to massage them a little bit and mm-hmm. get them to work as well as they can. Right. And that's up to the coaches. You know, that's what they're hired to do. They're hired to get the players to, to play the best that they can. Put them in. We hear this all the time. Put them in positions that they can succeed in. Right. And so, And by the way, you're right. You just can't all of a sudden start making cuts everywhere here and there. And, you know, yeah, you'll save a lot of money. But before you know it, you're gonna, the cupboard will be bare. You won't have anybody to line up on Sunday that's really worth anything. I think the most a turnover I ever saw in one season was nearly 30 players. And that's that's over half. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that's about the most you could possibly expect to turn over because with with the contracts the way they are, uh, you just you can't do more than that. It's just impossible to fill that many pegs into that many holes. Yeah. I mean, you really need 25 guys, right? 11 starters on each, then the kickers and the punter. So, and the snapper. Don't forget about the snapper. They're people too. They are yes. people too. <laughs> well, and also to your points, 
when you think about it, sometimes you may not be extremely fond of a player, but when you combine the financials and then you combine right. what's there on the market, it may not be an upgrade getting rid of that player. You're making a change for the sake of making a change. So, you know, that's the other thing that you have to weigh. With respect to the caller's first point about how they may attack the offensive line, if you look at Buffalo, they brought in some free agents while Joe Shane was there. They brought in Mitch Morse, who was the center from Kansas City. He came in in 2019. They brought in Darrell Williams, who had ties going back to the Carolina days in 2020, and then they signed John Feliciano in the middle in 2019. So those were three free agent offensive linemen that have been brought in progressively over the course of three years. Deion Dawkins had already been drafted, if you look at the Bills' offensive line. Yeah, so I don't think it's crazy to think that they would entertain the idea of bringing in a free agent offensive lineman to help complement the youth movement, but as the two of you were saying, it's not like you have a lot of money to throw against the wall, even if you wanted to bring in some veteran free agents. So you have to be realistic. And you also have to be realistic that, you know, the three guys I named, it's not like I'm talking about pro bowlers on a consistent basis. Okay, I understand Darrell Williams was an all-pro in 2017, but they signed him in 2020 when he was about three seasons removed from that. Feliciano was just a veteran who had been with the Raiders for a few seasons. And Mitch Morse, solid player but also was not a pro bowler. So, you know, that's what you're probably looking at if the Giants do have the flexibility financially to go after a veteran offensive lineman. Good point. Very good. You're restricted. Remember, in terms of, it goes back to what we were talking about. First, they got to get under the cap, okay? You got to make sure that your house is in order before you start all of a sudden thinking about what you're going to do on the free agent market. 201-939-4513. That is the telephone number. Let's head back to the lines. Cliff is in New York. What's happening, Cliff? Hello, Lance. How are you guys doing? Good. Um, Hi. I, uh, I appreciate uh, hearing about the different values for the different positions. Uh, before I get to my question, what's an inside linebacker's tag? Well, there is no inside linebacker tag. There's a linebacker tag. Right. Oh, so they're all the same. Yeah, well, that's what we were talking about. Just like offensive linemen, there's an O-line tag. There's not a Oh, I didn't tag, realize that. A center tag. Oh I, thought, yeah. oh, I thought it was just the edge rusher had a big tag and the, and the rest of them didn't. Okay. And by well, the way, I, just a minute ago, Jeff brought up the long snappers. There is no franchise tag for long snappers. And as we huh. know, there are a lot of guys who just long snap in this league, and one of Jeff's best friends, Zach Diasi, was a long snapper, never played it down as a linebacker in the NFL. Jeff, there's no tag for a snapper. Casey Kreider's another one. Probably have to go with the quarterback tag. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Coach McGahee just gave uh, Casey Kreider some props uh, for being a good long snapper in his uh, his interview. I saw that. Yeah, Yeah, he's he's a free agent this year, too. Yeah. yeah. Well, what I was thinking about listening to all these values is that I understand that uh, Joe Shane has to take this into consideration. He's trying to lock guys up through the draft. He's trying to lock guys up for four or five years so that he gets uh, some impact players at the, these positions where he doesn't have to spend $20 million on one for free agency. And I'm trying to put that together with what I've been thinking about. I, I also uh, am I'm not enthusiastic about... Um, uh, the talk I'm hearing about the offensive linemen at the top of the draft, especially after I heard John and Paul talk about the draft and the, and the mock drafts um, and the limitations of the big names that have been bandied around as, as being not strong enough all around. 
and um, putting that together with having a deep draft and put uh, from, from the COVID situation, a lot of guys uh, being added to the pool that would have graduated last year, but they're going to be there this year, and, um, and putting that together with um, uh, the deep being really good, um, I'm looking at spending the first few picks, wherever they turn out to fall, on defense. And my position for spending the top pick is defensive lineman. And I don't know if, the, if you guys put it all together the same way. Um, in terms of going with what position at those first two top picks, you think? You mean? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I, was, I was thinking we needed a defensive lineman, whether he's an end or a tackle. I'm confused about edge rusher. If a guy weighs 300 pounds and he comes in from the end and, and he gets to the quarterback, that to me is an edge rusher. But I don't think that's what they mean by edge rusher. They mean somebody that weighs less. Um, but I want one of those guys. I think that was one of the things we were missing the most. And then if we can't count on Blake to come back or he's not even going to be here anyway, uh, I, need, I need an inside linebacker because that turned out to be, by default, our most valuable position maybe last year. We lost so much from that. It, it just that, the, the, that, that was on my mind that we needed another ILB. Um, well, I think a lot of this, a lot of this goes um, with Wink Martindale and his philosophy about getting yes. after the passer. So I think that that will come into play with your linebackers and your edge rushers, if you will, um, and also the cornerback position. So you have to be aware of that type of scheme that he's bringing to the table and what type of personnel he's going to have to work with it. Yeah, because right. they're going after guys that are suitable for his defense. I mean, that was one of the things that Joe Shane talked about working with Brian Dable in the past. He'd go to Dable, he'd be like, you know, what type of tight end do you want? And Dable would describe the character traits of a tight end. So they would then identify where those traits match up with their draft board. I'm sure they're going to ask Martindale, all right, what type of an edge rusher do you want? What do you want him to be able to do? And then you try to go after guys that fit the scheme. The other thing, Cliff, that you have to understand, when they use the term edge rusher, it's mainly yeah. because in a 3-4 and a 4-3 defense, you know, some guys are defensive ends, other guys are outside linebackers. So instead of just saying, hey, he's a linebacker or a defensive end, he's an edge rusher meaning he's a guy that whether he's standing up or he's got a hand in the ground, you utilize him within your defense to get after the quarterback. I mean, that's why they but really label guys enough, as edge rushers. But is he big enough to help in the run game? Well, that depends on what you want him to do within your defense. Some guys in a defense, they tell him, we just want you to get after the quarterback. We'll worry about stopping the run with the other guys that we have. That's all. Well, I, think we really need, I think we really need help run-stopping. That was so obvious. What you've got to remember, it, it's not even the size of the guy, and I know you've, you've mentioned the size. Look, Michael Strahan at one point in his career during the end was playing at 255 pounds, but he was wow. equally great against the run as he was getting after the quarterback. So what okay. you're really talking about, don't, don't confuse yourself by mm -hmm. getting tied into the weight of the player. It's about is he going to be a rotational player who is in the rotation against the run or is in a rotation against the pass or is he a three-down player, which means he's staying in for the entirety of the series. And even if he's playing out on the edge, maybe on one play, maybe he's coming inside and playing tackle like Justin Tuck, who was a three-down player but played different positions based on the down-in situation. You can you look, at, look at okay. Vernon. Look at Vernon. Okay, he was an edge rusher, yes. but he was a very good run stopper. And JPP, the same way. Yep. JPP played the run very well, but he could also okay. get after the quarterback. 
And those guys okay, both weigh about, less than 280 pounds. And what about Coach Martindale having five or six defensive backs frequently? Does that, does that mean linebackers are less important? Um, a little bit, but not at, at the, uh, the linebacker that you're talking about, the edge rushing linebacker still is very important. I think the other one is you're talking about your middle linebacker or guys that, you know, you got to have one of those linebackers come out when your nickel package goes in. Right. So, um, and I think that, I don't think it's as less as important. I think it's just a matter of where you're going to use those guys and what type of situational downs that you have to play them in. Yeah, but I don't okay, think Martindale, think... j- just real quickly, I want to piggyback Jeff. I would say that most defenses probably implement five to six defensive backs, especially with the pass-happy league, right? So I don't think it's just unique to Martindale. You could no, argue every no, defensive no, no, no. coordinator, right? And I didn't mean it to, yeah. to, to sound that way. It's absolutely, no, and I didn't yeah. think you were. I just wanted to clarify that in, in terms of the question. I don't think it's Martindale's defense. Most GMs are asking their defensive coordinators the same thing because they usually take the interior linebackers off the field when you put additional wide receivers out mm-hmm. there that you have to tackle. Yep. Okay. Well, still, I'm looking – I want to spend draft capital on defense first. I don't think we can afford to go any further backwards on defense and be competitive at all. And, and uh, I know there's going to be a process building up the offense, and there's a lot of excitement about it, and there, sh- there should be because it's going to be better, and it might be better sooner than we think or hope. But I can't – got to have some defensive players coming in. I mean – uh, we, we, we really need those guys, and I, I hope you agree that the deep draft means that there would still be plenty of offensive line talent that, that's all-around guys uh, uh, that, that can both, both move the run and protect the passer in the mid-rounds, and that maybe we don't need to go for the offensive line in the first four or five picks. All right, Cliff. Well, we appreciate the phone call. It's a, when it comes it's, to yeah. – go ahead, Jeff. No, yeah. I'm just saying it, it, it's everybody's own opinion, and it, you can argue the point all the time. I, I can understand where somebody is saying that, you know, you want to improve your defense because, if you know, if you come from the philosophy that defense wins championships and come from the philosophy if you have a really good defense, your offense doesn't have to be that great, then that could go to his philosophy as far as finding, you know, players in the third, fourth, and fifth round that might be able to build your offense. But – you got to remember what you're looking at from a standpoint of what this offense has done the last few years. This offense is horrible. I mean, it was the numbers if you just look at them. So I, I think that kind of throws that out the door, in my opinion, or the window, whatever you want to go out. You know so. where this kind of gets really, really tilted, Jeff? It's because the Giants' offensive line is really in such bad shape. Right. You know, I, I was always one who stressed offensive line. How many how many of these guys over the years, going all the way back to Robert Gallery, I was like, the Giants need to target this guy. And, you know, it, it didn't happen. But, but here's what I will say. Um, you – the basic premise, okay – yeah, everybody would love to have a dominant offensive line because we know in football 101, the offensive line, it's the trenches that wins the games. But in truth, because today's game has evolved so much, the key word is functional. And it, 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 I've been using this now for a lot of years. You want to have a functional offensive line and a functional running game. That's the key word. And unfortunately, the Giants are so much below functional that the truth of the matter is, you can't just say, and in years past, there were times when I did this also, when I said, you know what, you can get a third-round offensive lineman to plug into that one spot, and you're going to be okay. Well, that's if you've got at least maybe three-fifths of the line already built. The problem with the Giants is that right now, they only have one-fifth of the line that's built. 
So you can't afford to just load up on functional guys on the rest of that line. You need to have at least three bona fide studs. And then maybe the other two guys maybe can be functional. But you can't have more than just two functional guys on a starting offensive line if you expect to be a, a, a good team. You just can't. It's just it, it, No, you just can't do it. Mm-hmm. Well, it also goes back to the last caller was talking about depth at various positions. You could say there's a positional group that has depth, but that doesn't mean that there's not a drop-off or a noticeable drop-off, right, between defensive linemen and offensive linemen. So taking a guy in a first-round slot is still extremely more valuable than perhaps waiting till the second to the third round to address the offensive line. If you think the first-round guy is going to make that much more of a difference, you could say the same thing about the defensive line. So depth can be interpreted very differently, meaning you feel good. Hey, there's going to be guys that will come in. They'll make an impact. But what, Paul, you're talking about is you're talking about maybe getting a guy that could be a staple for your offensive line for years to come, not just a guy that could be solid and we could utilize him for two to three years and he has the versatility to be plugged in in various positions. Well, so am that's I wrong? Why- do, you, do you guys agree? The Giants have one-fifth of their offensive line set. Don't they need at least two studs before we start talking about functional guys? Or, or do you guys don't think that's important? No, I think it's extremely important. Well, that's why I was going to weigh in, and Jeff basically summed it up beautifully. When you want to argue you don't want the defense to fall off, hold on, you want the offense to get back to functionability, which is what right. you're talking about. We're talking <laughs> about an not offense that yet. averaged. Yeah, we're talking about an offense that averaged under 20 points in each of the last two seasons. You're worried about the defense falling off a little? How about worrying about the offense to maybe get to 21 points a game? How about that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, in order to accomplish that, you need an offensive line that can help run the ball efficiently and pass protect. I mean, those are the basic concepts in order to get your offense to about 21 points a game. So, yeah, it's absolutely a priority. Now, with that being said, guys, I don't know where you stand. That doesn't mean that you have to take two offensive linemen, though, with the fifth and seventh overall picks. I don't know if I would say that has to be a must. If you feel really good about one offensive lineman and one defensive lineman, I have no problem with them splitting. I don't think it's a situation where you just take two offensive linemen for the sake of taking two offensive linemen. Those two offensive linemen, you better feel pretty good that those meet the criteria, Paul, of what you're talking about. No doubt. No yeah. doubt. But but the truth of the matter is, when you're picking five and seven, you need to feel that way regardless of position about True. both yeah. picks if you're going to make those picks. 100%. Yeah. Or you move. Right. <laughs> Assuming a team wants to move up. <laughs> it goes back to your philosophy, Jeff. It takes two to tango, right? Yeah, With right. the franchise right. tag? Yeah. Well, it takes two to tango in the draft as well. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out. I think it, I think I just have a feeling it's going to happen, but that's just, you know, that's, that's on our board. I, we can put it on our board in here. The Eagles thinks that the giants are trading back. That's just what I think is happening. I think this team wants more. you to use your term, Lance at bats. They want to build this team through the draft. And you, the only way you do that is by maneuvering your way around the draft. Right? So I think that that's important to Joe Shane and his staff. Well, look, the Eagles moved up, right, to grab a wide receiver in last year's draft. I'm just thinking of examples that are non-quarterbacks, Jeff, which Mm -hmm. would pretty much meet what you're talking about. Unless We've seen it before. I mean, we've seen other teams move up to take somebody that's not a quarterback. It's not crazy, but normally when we're talking about five and seven, like those positions, top ten pick, normally you move up to grab a quarterback under those circumstances. Yep, and we talked about this, you know, time and time again about that position position by far is the most important on a football team and every year these guys get kind of pushed up to the top as as we get closer and closer because of the combine and their pro days and all that kind of stuff 
Um, so, and when you look at the teams below the Giants, you go out there and you start looking at those teams that need quarterbacks, and maybe some one of those guys becomes a little bit sexier than the other, and that they want to move up. Um, there's your tango. There's your team. And could it be within the division? Who knows? It might be, but. Um, I just don't know how this uh, this new organization, if you will, is going to respond to something like that if somebody in the division wants to trade with you. I, I mean, I'm all for it. I don't really care. Just give me my numbers because I'm not very happy. I'm not very, you know, I don't think the quarterbacks, um, I'm not saying that they are or they aren't. I'm just saying in this philosophy, if you don't think any of these guys are worth taking, then and you can still think that you can get that offensive lineman or that defensive lineman that we're talking about a few picks later, then do it. 201-939-4513. That is the telephone number. Lance Meadow, Jeff Fiegels, Paul Dettino with you here on Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Kevin is in Florida, and he joins us. What's happening, Kevin? Hi, Kevin. How's it going, fellas? First time uh, first time call here. Oh, welcome aboard. Cool. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So what do you got for us? Appreciate you guys. Love the show. Um, I just wanted to quick, like, talk about Daniel Jones. I feel, like, I feel like a lot of people will just say I would be like, this is just like last chance or like, his like last uh, attempt to, to be a franchise quarterback. I feel like I hate that like that like mindset. I feel like this might be his like first opportunity, if that makes sense. Like I, f- I feel like he's got for for the first time really like a lot of good brains behind everything that's going on, and I, I feel like it, again like it could be just like his first real opportunity. So my question is, and I know that um, Paul and Jeff were talking about this. I think it was on Thursday last week. Um, they were talking about the fifth-year option and how, like, we pretty much all just assumed that they were they weren't going to pick it up. But after like discussing it, you guys discussed it last week. It made me really think. Like, I feel like that would make sense, like financially, for the mm-hmm. next two years, because like you you really wouldn't have to pay. Like, you could in theory you could tag Barkley next year, and you wouldn't have to pay either of them until 2024. I feel like that's a pretty solid evaluation period over the next two years if you want to really quote unquote evaluate. Daniel Jones, but I don't know. I just feel like I got faith in him, and I feel like this is like a real opportunity for him instead of like a, a last chance, if that makes sense. Lance, to catch you up on what the caller's talking about, Jeff and I had a really long discussion about how Shane built the Bills. Uh, not him, uh, but Brandon Bean and Shane built the Bills. And the key points in Brandon Bean's philosophy, which we believe Shane will bring to the Giants. And one of those things was about believing so strongly in your quarterback's intangibles. For example, you remember when Josh Allen was a rookie, he struggled quite a bit in his first NFL season. But Brandon Bean said that they so strongly believed in his work ethic, his attitude, his leadership skills, his smarts, that they believed in all of those factors, which were all intangibles, okay, that they knew he was going to be the guy. And so they decided to commit and build around him. So what we were throwing around was the possibility of, do you believe that Shane's already talked about the intangibles that he knows about Daniel Jones? Dable has said the same thing. John Mara has said the same thing. Is it possible that it's not fait complete? that in fact the Giants will pick up the fifth-year option on Daniel Jones by May 2nd, which, by the way, would then make him a 21, 20 to $21 million quarterback in 2023, okay? And therefore, he actually has a two-year uh, a period 
to prove himself to the new administration as opposed to only a lame duck year, if you will, this year where he's going to have to ball out in order to get a new deal. And what we basically decided was there's no right or wrong answer here. You could logically make a play in either direction. And I would add the one thing, Jeff, that we did not talk about was if you decided to go with a franchise tag for a quarterback, uh, right now if you were to slap the franchise uh, next year on Jones, it would be $31 million. So the franchise tag really would not be an option. You're either going to have to figure out about picking up the fifth year or, 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 or playing it out, or for that matter, which we know they're not going to do, sign him to a new multi-year deal before the season starts. Lance, that's the, that's the general discussion that we had the other day, deciding there was no right or wrong answer on this. Yeah, and I don't disagree with anything. The only thing I will point out is keep in mind that Brandon Bean in that Bills front office drafted Josh Allen. So when you point out they felt really good about the quarterback, well, yeah, that's because they guy. did all the research. He and they was their guy. Him. That's Correct. true. Joe Shane is inheriting, same thing with Brian Dable, is inheriting Daniel Jones. They didn't draft him. So that you can true. understand if they're a little bit more on the fence and say, hey, you know, we'll give him a little bit more rope because we want to see what he could do, but we're not willing to go that far with the rope. To me, it's a little bit of a different mindset in terms of giving leeway to Allen versus giving leeway to Jones. That's the only thing that I think at least is important to point out. The other thing about the caller saying, well, maybe this is going to be the first opportunity. I mean, keep in mind, Josh Allen had far more stability around him in the jump of the evaluation as you went from 17 to 18 to 19. Dable came in in 18. They stuck with Dable. With Daniel Jones, you had Pat Shermer. You know, then you moved to Jason Garrett. Then Garrett left. You know, you had a lot of movement. You didn't have nearly as much stability to evaluate Daniel Jones compared to Josh Allen. So, you know, those are other factors that I would bring in. Not what you were talking about, Paul, what the caller was saying, and certainly appreciate the phone call, Kevin, in terms of saying, well, this could be looked as a fresh start. There's a lot of years that have gone by with constant change. I just I don't know if the Giants are saying, now we're going to reset the clock and start it all over again. And I don't know how you guys feel, but I actually, I think the caller used the phrase about, you know, he didn't really think that Daniel Jones was surrounded by great minds. I'm not necessarily saying that Pat Shermer and Mike Shula were great minds in NFL history, but I do think they had a good plan sure. to help Daniel Jones thrive. So I disagree with the sentiment that Daniel Jones has never really had a good support system around him. I think statistically, and also in terms of how Shermer utilized him, I actually thought he was heading in the right direction. Unfortunately, we never got to see him build upon that. I, I think it's a great point. I, I, you know, a lot of times it's not, these coaches are all pretty darn good and their philosophies are built upon a lot of things that have been successful either with the team that they came from or other teams that are running the similar systems that they're taking away from. You know, it all comes down, guys. We know how that this league works. It's it's who you have around you. It's the players that are on the field with that person. So I think you look at uh, take a long, long, hard look at that before you look at what the coaches did for him. I just think he just didn't have a lot of the players around him. I mean, remember, he did well his rookie year in a system that he just picked up. Um, but as the as time went along, that offensive line started to just become not good and sure. then the next thing you know injuries started to, to you know rear their ugly heads and then he, he would come back and then the next thing you know the the line wasn't doing things and it was just a just bad so you think that maybe this could help him but I agree with you Lance I don't think it was so much the system was you know so bad that he that those coaches were so bad that he couldn't 
play the way he's supposed to. Let's head back to the phone line. Scott is in New Mexico, and he joins us. What's happening, Scott? Hello, Scotty. Hi, guys. Uh, I have to disagree with the caller about drafting defensive personnel. Uh, I'll use an expression that you probably heard. Those who feel those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And I'm of the mindset you need to take a couple of offensive linemen in those draft in the draft right now, unless you can get a good free agent. But the guys I have in mind: uh, Charles Cross, Evan Neal, uh, Kwanu, and uh, Daniel Falele. Uh, a lot of them played left, left tackle, or our draft network is, is posing them as left tackles. Although I think. Whoever I spoke to, I know Neil played uh, originally right tackle for Alabama and then switched over to left tackle. How difficult is the transition to make to right tackle if you've played left tackle? And also another question, if Iquanu was moved, for example, to guard position, say he was moved to the left guard, would he feel comfortable with that because obviously you get paid more as a tackle? Or has Quentin Nelson and uh, people like that uh, changed the dynamics, Zach Martin, changed the dynamics as far as pay scale uh, for guards? Well, Scott, but before also, you go any further, remember, sure. in the draft, matter. you get slotted yeah. by the slot you're taking in the first round, and that's how you're paid based on your slot. You're not, okay. you're not paid based on your position as a rookie. Now, of course, when you come up for that second contract – you know, who knows right. in four or five years if he's still playing guard. I mean, one of the scenarios that I talked about with John was that if I wound up taking Equanu and Cross with those two picks, which in theory is possible for me, I would not rule that out. I'm not saying it's my favorite choice, but it would right. be something I would consider. Well, Aquanu is playing guard for me initially because I'm going to use Thomas and Cross as my tackles, Aquanu is my guard, and I got three studs to work off of right there. I'm really happy with that. So okay. he, he would start out as a guard for me on his rookie deal. Doesn't mean he's going to be there four or five years from now when his new contract has to be done. You don't know. Okay. Well, um, I'll take this question off the air because I know you guys are short on time. Uh, with Daniel Bailey, he's going to be the biggest lineman, I think, in, in the draft. If he is able to get his weight down, I know he'll be a project player, but he played right tackle and knows how to play that position when he played at Minnesota. So I'm just curious, if he can get his weight down, and I know he's possibly a project player, do you think the Giants might potentially look at him as the, you know, the, uh, you know, savior for that the right tackle position? And uh, I'll take your answers off the air, guys. Thanks again. All right, Scott. Appreciate the phone call. To me, when it comes to a guy playing left or right side, a lot of it is a footwork adjustment yeah. mm-hmm. of anything else. You know, I understand that, you know, the last caller was talking about the size and whether or not the guy could be moved inside, outside. If you ask most tackles who have had to make the transition, it's the footwork and the handwork because it's the opposite of what you did on the left side. So, I mean, if you drafted a guy that mainly played on the left side and you spent the entire training camp and preseason in getting him adjusted and lining up on the opposite side, I don't think that's asking a whole lot. It's just it's a matter of repetition so it becomes second nature. You know, that's why sometimes if you just throw a guy out there in the blue during the course of the season, he never had reps. Yeah, it may be quite the adjustment because everything's the opposite of what he was doing. But if you prepare the offensive lineman accordingly and you have a plan that's set, 
I don't think you're asking to move mountains in changing a guy from the left side to the right side as long as you prepare accordingly. I think it can be done. You also have to understand that there's going to be a learning process that goes with it. So, I mean, if you have all that and you're okay with it, um, but certainly if there's a lot of time, and this is why the offseason becomes so important for these guys that are drafted in that situation, they've got a, they got a lot of work to do. they got to start in those, you know, the OTAs and the mini camps and then training camp and preseason games. You know, you get a lot of time to go if you were a left to a right or right to a left. I mean, in this case, we're not going from a right to a left. we got a left. We need a guy that's maybe going from the left to the right, which I don't know which is easier, but I think there's plenty of time for those guys to, to work on that. Absolutely. The, the other thing you got to deal with besides the footwork, and David Deal would be best to speak about this, but when you know, you're know you using a different hand in the dirt. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's yep. a little bit of a balance factor there because of which side do you balance off of better when you're putting the left or the right hand in the dirt. But it's something that if you just drill the guy from the time he gets here in rookie minicamp to the time you start your regular season, that's a lot of opportunities to sure. get the guy used to it. Yeah. Well, and most players most guys who, have already done it, too. It, that helps. That certainly mm-hmm. helps if he has the repetition there previously coming in. But, I mean, the one guy that comes to mind, and I don't know the exact breakdown of where he lined up for every game in college, but Tyron Smith, for example, who's the starting left tackle for the Cowboys, his first year, he started out as a right tackle, and then he made the transition to left. My point is, most even top left tackles sometimes coming out of college, teams start him off on the right and then gradually move them to the left. Uh-huh. There's exceptions to the rule, of course. We see guys immediately get put to the left side, but a lot of the transition in the NFL is start the guy off on the right and then move him slowly to the left. Should we remind people Nate Solder started out at the right tackle yeah. spot for the Patriots? There's mm-hmm. another one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know. So, I mean, that's not unheard of if you draft a guy that was a perennial all-star at the left tackle position in college and say, hey, you're going to go to the right. They prepare them in their first training camp, and then they feel good because now, God forbid there's an injury, you have exposure, whether it be at college or the NFL levels, to both sides of the line. So, if anything, you developed your own versatile tackle by default to start the NFL season. So, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I would think that would be an extra bonus. All right, that is going to wrap up. uh, Tuesday's edition, excuse me. It's the first day of the week, but it's Tuesday here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. We'll be back up and running again on Wednesday starting at 12 p.m. Eastern. A reminder that you can listen to today's episode of Big Blue Kickoff Live. It's part of the Giants platforms everywhere and Giants.com slash podcasts. Appreciate everybody tuning in. Gentlemen, good conversation as always, and I will speak to you later on this week. Thank you, you guys. You got it. For Paul DeTino and Jeff Eagles, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday, and always stay locked to Giants.com. Have a good one.